this week on the Back Table Podcast. To be honest, uh, we, we kind of just were going into this with just trying to see if we could figure out some way to close this fistula. So, um, so we ended up laser ablating the tract of this patient who had a gastrocutaneous fistula. We, we did a standard fistula gram uh, by putting a catheter into the origin of the, fistula, of the fistula, injecting some contrast, measured the size and diameter of it, and then put the uh, laser probe inside of the fistula and then ablated it for, I think, roughly like 40 seconds or so. We ablated the tract. Uh, and then we noticed after we did a contrast injection after that, that the tract was not filling anymore. Hello and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. Download our free app from the iTunes store to access all of our podcasts, our blog, and additional content to help you through various procedures. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. We welcome back today Jeffrey Chick and Ravi Srinivasa to talk about advanced enteral access. Thank you guys for coming back on with us today. Um, a lot is going on with you guys these days. Jeffrey, uh, you've recently moved. Is that correct? Yeah, I just moved uh, from Michigan to Washington, D.C. And where are you working in Washington? Uh, I'm working at Innova Alexandria now. Nice. And, and what's your transition been like so far? Uh, it's been good. I mean, things are a lot different. Uh, I did a lot of uh, predominantly venous work in oncology at Michigan, and now I'm doing a lot of PAD down here. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> Robbie, you're going to be moving soon too, is that right? Yeah, I'm headed to Southern California here in the next couple of months, so I'll be out of here, leaving Michigan as well. Uh, fond memories, but uh, time to move forward. That's exciting. Uh, now, are they going to task you with doing you know, something like what you're doing now, which is everything? Hopefully, I'll be able to do everything. I'm, that's what I'm hoping for moving forward too. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk with you guys about, there's been a lot of buzz about, um, is uh, IRAD Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, sure. So uh, Ravi and I were trying to come up with a method to sort of unite, I think, the IR community. And uh, part of our uh, personal interests have been in some of the uh, need for innovation in IR. Uh, so I think the ultimate goal of IRAD Lab was sort of to unite the community and come up with new innovative ideas uh, to solve problems in IR. So, I mean, the two of you have been uh, really behind a lot of the innovation going on in our field. I mean, we've, we've had you guys on several times before to talk about this in several different areas. Um, you know, we hope you guys are going to be able to continue that. Do you guys have any plans to continue, you know, working cross country to keep this going. Yeah. I think we were joking uh, that we were going to try to have some sort of meeting uh, East meets West meeting sometime in the future so that we could get uh, like-minded people together and maybe even have a conference that's, uh, that's kind of focused on innovation. And in are, are we going to be invited? Absolutely. Nice. All right. That's exciting news. Um, well, you know, today we're going to be talking about advanced enteral access today, which, you know, I think we all probably take to mean uh, fluoroguided NG tubes, right? Yeah, many, many NG tubes, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, depending on where you go, uh, the distribution of, of IRs doing enteral access is really variable. Uh, you know, when, I don't know, when you guys were at Penn and, and myself as well, we did a ton of G tubes. Uh, now they're uh, kind of few and far between for me, uh, I tend to get the more difficult ones. And, and that's what's going to be kind of exciting about this podcast is uh, to hear some of the crazier things you're doing. Um, just to ask you to begin, you know, when you're doing standard G-tubes, are you guys push guys or pull guys? 
Uh, I, do, so, I do a combination of both. I do both push and pull, but mostly we do push at Michigan. When do you do pull? Uh, mostly in the stroke patients or patients who uh, we're afraid they're going to pull their tubes out. But usually we we tend to still lean towards putting push tubes in. Um, our techs get a little bit grossed out when we're pulling a tube through the patient's mouth. And so <laughs> I found a lot of a lot of hesitance from actually the techs and nurses from us putting Ponskis in. But uh, for the most part, we've been doing push. But I still like doing the uh, occasional pull type tube every once in a while. Keeps things interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, before I'll, we jump, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, I think uh, Schlansky at Penn, his favorite thing was the uh, pull through tube. But like Robbie said, uh, not too many people seem to like that at Michigan. It's surprising. We do. We did about somewhere between, I don't know, sometimes five and eight push uh, push G-tubes every single day at Michigan. It's the ton. Um, one of the other Schlansky specials was the transgastric tube, you know, like a cis gastrostomy. Did you ever do any of those with him? Yeah, I did a few when I was a fellow. Yeah, those, uh, any, anytime you show those to a tech, they're usually kind of mind blown. And then yeah, those are you know, thinks about how you're going to get those awesome. back. But, uh, you know, that, that kind of gives a nice segue into some stuff we had talked about before with you guys, which is, uh, you know, some of the endoscopy in the enteric tract. I know we covered a lot of that before. Um, but one thing I, I wanted to just briefly touch on was a paper you guys published about uh, using endoscopy through uh, gastrostomy access for foreign body retrieval. Um, could one of you maybe take this and just kind of explain what you guys are doing and, and why you need endoscopy for this? Well, I think this was uh, something that just came up a few times at Michigan uh, for sort of odd foreign body retrievals. So given that we had done uh, a bunch of endoscopy for the biliary tree, the genital urinary tract, it seemed fitting that this would be a good approach to uh, remove foreign bodies. So there have been several situations where, uh, say, something broke in the GI tract. I think we uh, had one case of a Ponsky mushroom, a case of a gastrojejunostomy limb, and also uh, several cases of malpositioned stents in the stomach hmm. uh, that couldn't really be retrieved any other way. I mean, certainly they could be retrieved either from a transoral approach, uh, endoscopically, or using floral guided techniques. But endoscopy seemed to uh, lend a hand to uh, remove these from a transgastric approach. So using the same uh, rigid endoscope that we talked about before, uh, we accessed the stomach, placed the scope in, and used that to remove a bunch of these foreign bodies. And I think we uh, published three or four of these cases in diagnostic and interventional radiology uh, just this a few months ago. So what's the visualization of the forceps like when you're using endoscopy? I mean, does it go through the tube or, you know, know, adjacent to it? Yeah, it goes right through the same working channel of the scope. So usually with these, with these foreign body removals, we're using the rigid endoscope, like Jeff said, um, which is 22 and a half French. So it fits through a 24 French uh, sheath. Uh, So we put that in the stomach and then through that, you can put up to a, a four millimeter device So uh, you can put the regular three millimeter endobronchial forceps through it. And it's awesome because you get literally one-to-one, it goes through the scope channel. So you can drive the scope exactly where the foreign body is, grab it with the forceps and pull everything out as a unit through the sheath. And so Uh, it works beautifully. Yeah. I saw in your, in one of the papers that you guys are using a a 24 French sheath for that. Uh, You know, assuming that your standard gastrostomy tube is a little smaller, and maybe it's not, do you have any issues with leakage when you return to the gastrostomy tube after, or does, you know, the previous gastropexy generally take care of that? 
Yeah, we haven't really had any issues with leakage since usually we're putting in for to get an 18 French tube and we usually dilate four French uh, larger yeah, than the size of the true. tube. So we put a 22 peel away. I know some people use a 20 French and only dilate two French larger and pre-split the peel away in order to get the tube to go in. But uh, we usually dilate to 22 anyway for 18 French tubes. So if the patient has an 18, we're only dilating it less than a millimeter more uh, than we would have if we put a 22 French peel away in. Right. Um, so I, we haven't really had any issues as long as the balloons inflated appropriately. Uh, no patients have complained of leakage post-procedurally. Okay. Uh, you know, from here, I'd like to move on to something, uh, Ravi, that is, is one of your many babies. And uh, I think is a really exciting option to, you know, get patients in and out of the door with a single visit. And that's, you know, primary jejunostomy tube placement, um, you know, using a retrograde technique with transnasal snares. Could you tell me about how you, know, you kind of conceived this idea and, and why this is an important development? Yeah. So uh, it came up kind of just serendipitously because I was doing a J tube with one of our residents, Bill Shirk, and uh, we were really struggling to try to put this primary jejunostomy tube in on this patient. The bowel just kept moving away. We were sticking multiple times. We had contrast all over the peritoneum and we couldn't get into a bowel loop uh, successfully and actually get a wire into it. We'd hit bowel numerous times, but we could never get uh, the, the wire to actually go inside and we couldn't get it definitely not even a pexy in. So I thought like, you know, maybe I'll put a, put a catheter down from the nose and like we had already had a catheter down in the, in the proximal small bowel, but we thought, why don't we get a bit, bit longer catheter and see if we can get a little bit closer to where we want to access the small bowel. And this particular patient, the reason they had a, uh, needed a jejunostomy was because they'd had uh, post-surgical uh, changes in their stomach. So they'd have a ruined Y bypass with a gastrojejunostomy. So it was, a, yeah, it was a small gastric pouch, which was anastomosed to uh, the jejunum. And so we had a pretty straight shot to get down from the stomach down into the small bowel. So we were able to get a catheter down further into the small bowel. And I thought, why don't we see if we could just target something in order to, to get into that loop? So we ended up putting a loop snare in with just a regular standard gooseneck snare, 120 centimeter system. Uh, open that up in the small bowel and then uh, used fluoroscopy to just target that. And the nice thing about that is that you don't have to worry about the bowel moving away from you because your goal is just to get a needle, a 21 gauge needle through and through that snare. So it doesn't matter if you go through the, through the bowel loop or through another loop, the key is making sure that your, your, that loop is superficial. So we used ultrasound to confirm that the snare was in a superficial loop and ensure there was no intervening structures or any intervening bowel used rotational fluoroscopy to also confirm that, got a needle through and through it, and then put a, a, a wire through there. We used a V18. Uh, and then the nice thing is then once you can close the snare down, you're actually, since you're luminal from the transnasal approach, you can just pull the wire up and out the nose. So you've essentially body floss the patient from their nose mm-hmm. out their percutaneous puncture in the abdomen through the small bowel, and then dilate up the tract the way you would normally dilate any tract and then ultimately, we've, we've been putting in uh, 16 French uh, MIC jejunostomy tubes, so going straight to a balloon-type jejunostomy tube. Um, we've also kind of modified the technique a little bit, so to add a, add performing a PEXI as well, and that, that's also made relatively easy since you already have uh, the loop kind of targeted with a snare. You can just puncture it again and put a PEXI in just to prevent the loop from pulling away yeah. as the track matures. So. It works beautifully. We've done it on a number of patients now with good results. And um, the key is that the tubes are going retrograde. So you have to 
cut them a bit short. But usually what we do is after a few weeks, after the track's matured, we convert it to an anti-grade tube. Um, and it's, it's really easy to convert it to an anti-grade tube after the track is mature. So Okay. Um, and so do you have to do any contrast injection or anything else? Like, how do you confirm you haven't gone through, uh, an overlying loop in route to the one that you access? Yeah. So the, the, the best way we've been doing it is looking with, if it's a skinny patient, looking with ultrasound and confirming it not through any other loops. And, uh, if it's a, if it's a bigger patient, you can do a cone beam CT to confirm there's no intervening loops. And then also using rotational fluoroscopy, you can kind of figure out and just put a hemostat on the skin and then rotate around and ensure that it's very superficial and that there's no other loop in the way. But the best way is ultrasound if you can see it. And if not, cone beam CT is a good way to confirm. Okay. So, I mean, I take it you probably need to access a fairly proximal small bowel loop to do this since you're, you know, you have to sneak this through with your transnasal snare. I mean, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, uh, you know, you, with, uh, with patients who have gastrojejunostomies, you know, you're already in jejunum relatively quickly because you're, you're going through a gastrojejunum osmosis. So it works really well in those patients, particularly to just use a standard loop snare. We kind of modified the technique. Jeff and I kind of came up with this way of, uh, of actually using a stent in order to target, um, in, in order to target a, a bowel loop as well. And since, these uh, endoscopic stents come on a 270 centimeter delivery system. You can actually get them a lot further within the small bowel. So it works well in patients who have, you know, normal anatomy of the stomach, but need a uh, jejunostomy for whatever reason, or patients who you just want to get further out in the small bowel. And and if you use a a stent, you can partially deploy this wall flex stent, uh, which comes on a 270 centimeter delivery system and target the stent and then capture your wire and pull it through and through very similarly to how you do this transnasal technique, snare technique as well. So. Okay. Jeff, why would that technique be uh, important or much more helpful in patients with hiatal hernia? Well, so uh, like Robbie said, I think part of that technique developed out of a, uh, again, a frustrating case where there were, I think, four uh, staff working on this patient that had a huge hiatal hernia we were all trying for hours to navigate out the out of the stomach, trying a variety of wires, snares, all kinds of different things. Eventually, we got a sheath past the hiatal hernia. But if you think about it, uh, because the stomach is up in the chest, uh, that increases the distance uh, to the small bowel itself. So since we didn't really have any kind of snare that would reach the distal small bowel, uh, as Robbie just described, uh, we use this wall flex duodenal stent. So once we got a wire out far enough, uh, in this case, we used a jag wire, uh, which is a longer GI wire. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar with it, it's a 450 centimeter long, uh, basically hydrophilic wire. And over that, we put a much longer uh, a stent, uh, which was a 22 millimeter by 90 uh, millimeter wall flex. And essentially... Uh, as we talked about in our Venus talk, we used it as a giant snare. Uh, so it gave us increased distance and gave us a better target. Uh, so we opened it, uh, partially deployed it, targeted it with an 18-gauge needle, uh, put another 450-centimeter uh, Jaguar through it, closed it, and then pulled it back out the nose. So it uh, gave us through and through access uh, and gave us the added distance that we needed to place these retrograde J-tubes. Jeff, can you explain again how to capture the access from that 18 gauge needle? Like how do you how do you capture the access with that deploy? Like what do you use to capture the wire? So so actually it's very, very easy. I mean, you just uh, partially deploy that uh, wall flex stent 
And then you take an 18 gauge needle and you just go, uh, basically come right down on top of it fluoroscopically, mm-hmm. uh, puncture the stent itself, and then just feed a whole bunch of, uh, wire, uh, the Jaguar from the trans abdominal approach, the percutaneous approach. And it doesn't really matter where the wire goes internally, as long as part of it is going through the uh, stent itself, then you just close the stent and essentially it just uh, traps, traps the wire and you carefully pull the stent back out the nose, and with it, it brings the wire out. That makes sense. It's, I was also going to say the, that, uh, it, you know, anyone who's done jejunostomy tubes knows how frustrating it can be to try to target a loop of small bowel because it's just literally moving away from you. Every time you try to poke it with a needle, it just pushes away. Or even once you may get a wire inside of it, the, the it just moves away from you because while you're trying to dilate the track because it's just freely mobile and it's it's not secured like the stomach is. So the nice thing about this technique, whether you use a snare or a stent or whatever to target, is that pretty much every time you can hit the small bowel loop within one or at most two sticks by just targeting that snare or targeting the stent. And um, you don't even have to use contrast. It doesn't turn into this huge mess where you're injecting contrast all over the peritoneum and making a huge mess. You just literally just stick it once and you're in, you pull through and through. And because you have that through and through rail, uh, of having it from the nose out the stomach, you can actually pull both ends of the wire and keep it taut. And it makes it a lot easier to dilate into that loop of small bowel because you don't have to worry that you're going to lose your wire access because the bowel is moving away from you. So it makes things a lot, lot easier. Uh, and I, I think yeah. I'll say that uh, I think a testament to that is uh, Robbie published the first two transnasal cases in CBIR. And if you look at the data there, uh, the procedure itself took only, it's only two cases, but they only took 26 minutes total where some of the other pla- uh, papers for jejunostomies take several hours to place these tubes. Right. So it's very, very, very easy. And I think uh, is a great technological advancement uh, for the placement of these. And even when using the stent, uh, the stent makes it very fast as well. I think uh, our procedure time for our stent cases has been approximately around 100 minutes. And that's a little bit skewed by the fact that our first one took us several hours just trying to figure out what exactly to use. I forgot to ask you, uh, what kind of tube are you placing um, when you're doing these? So Uh, French Mick jejunostomy tubes is usually what we're using um, for these. Um, We've converted a couple to buttons after the tract is matured. Uh, but initially we've been placing 16 French Mick jejunostomies. You could also argue you could place a pigtail. It doesn't matter what type of tube you place, but the key is just not over dilating, uh, the hole to any, you know, okay. we, for, for putting a 16 French tube in, we put a 20 French peel away in and then put the 16 French tube through that and make sure we inflate. Right, the I think that's another positive of this, uh, is that, you know, you're going directly to the, to the, the 16 French Mick. I mean, at, at least I know. You know, at Penn, what we would typically do is just put in a pigtail and then bring the patient back and convert to a MIC later. Uh, you know, I, I think this is another positive is having that extra support from the third through access. It gives you a bit more flexibility in what you can place and where. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, and I, I think the important thing of this uh, sort of this, what the innovation here shows is that a lot of times people, I think, have just been hesitant to place jejunostomies at all or primary jejunostomies just because we all know how difficult difficult they can really be. And so I think a lot of centers just say, no, we don't offer these, or maybe one person will try, but 
you know, success is like 50% if you don't do them very often or maybe even less. But with these techniques, uh, your success rate is 100%. And uh, they're very, very easy to do this way. I mean, and you might think that it's difficult to navigate out into the small bowel to get a snare or get a stent out, out there. And honestly, it's not as difficult as you would think. If you, you can make it a little bit easier by placing a sheath down the nose, uh, into the stomach and out into the small bowel, like a 12 French sheath can sometimes help you, uh, maintain some stability. But then, then beyond that, usually the wire just finds its way, uh, out into the small bowel. You can place the snare, you can place the stent, target it. And targeting is pretty much a no brainer in a lot of ways, pull it through and then just place the tube. And it's, I mean, it's remarkable how much easier this is than the, some of the other techniques. Some of these patients even already have like indwelling Dobhoff tubes that are post-pyloric already in the small bowel. So you can just wire, wire that out and just put a snare through it and it just makes it super fast and easy. I think it would be really helpful if you guys wouldn't mind uh, when we finish, send us some pictures, uh, maybe some annotated pictures to show us what you're looking like and what you're looking at when you're doing this. I think one thing for me that would be helpful is seeing that ultrasound image, what you're looking for on there. Because uh, what I usually see is gas. Uh, and so it would be nice to, you know, to see what you see to kind of guide you in placing these in another picture with, uh, you know, maybe that stint out and it shows what it looks like. Absolutely. I think part of it is it's actually pretty remarkable. If you uh, put the ultrasound down and then just twist the stent or twist the snare, you can actually mm-hmm. see the ectatic device uh, remarkably well. And there's yeah. no, there's almost no confusion, you know, right. Oh, you see, Oh, it's in a superficial loop, but I think we've even stopped. We had for a lot of these just use rotational fluoroscopy and you can see okay. that the, it's so anterior and so, and right under the skin that, uh, for the most part, you know, it's superficial, but, uh, yeah, we'll absolutely send you some annotated pictures because this of all things, I think this can be pretty confusing. What wire is what and what is where and all these things. So We'll do that. I think so too, but at the same time, especially compared to, you know, what you guys are doing with endoscopy and some of your really complex lymphatic work, like this is a procedure that I think, you know, really anybody out there should be able to handle as long as they're comfortable doing enteral access. Uh, and I think this is a really innovative technique that uh, could really change how people do this. Well, I, th- I think you're right. And, and to be honest, this, I think, is one of the things that I think both of us are a little bit more proud of. Uh, because it is something that's uh, relatively simple and uh, something that I think all interventional radiologists are asked at some point to perform. And this really makes the existing uh, approaches much easier. Uh, so, look, I know this doesn't exactly follow with enteral access, but something I really wanted to ask you guys about that there has been a ton of buzz about since you guys have posted about this on Twitter is uh, laser ablation closure for EC fistulas, like intercutaneous fistulas are easily one of, you know, the most frustrating problems that anybody faces, particularly surgeons. And it's just something that just extremely morbid. Uh, and this is a really exciting concept. And at this point, you know, really anything that would work with these would be welcomed with open arms. Uh, tell us how you guys got started doing this. Yeah, we, we had a few patients who uh, were referred to us by our surgery colleagues who had these chronic indwelling or chronic uh, enterocutaneous fistulas and, and a couple of patients who had these gastrocutaneous fistulas yeah. after they had uh, their jejun or, sorry after they had gastrostomy tubes removed 
and had persistent leakage, persistent drainage. It had pretty much everything tried. They'd, they'd had endoscopic interventions with a bear claw place. They'd had uh, uh, fibrin injections into the tract. They'd had glue embolization attempted into tracts and, and just nothing was working. And these, these, some of these patients, the ones with, uh, with the gastrocutaneous fistulas had gastroparesis. So they were kind of a setup to have chronic drainage from um, their, uh, after having removal of their gastrostomy tube. So one patient in particular actually wanted us to just put her tube back in because she was so frustrated with the amount of drainage she was having from her uh, um, gastrostomy, old gastrostomy site. So we thought, why don't we see if we could try something different? So we we ended up um, talking to her about it. We ended up you know, getting consent from her as well as uh, the referring physician to try something using a, a laser, uh, using actually the same laser that we use for EVLT, um, the endovenous laser of the vena cure system, never touch. Um, so we grabbed that from our, from our, um, you know, our vascular colleagues and then brought it over and, and decided to see, we, we had no idea how this was going to work. We'd done a little bit of background <laughs> reading on it. Uh, there was this paper that was published with like a hundred plus patients where they'd used lasers to actually close anal fistulas in patients with Crohn's disease. And so we kind of just little, did a little bit of background reading, but, but to be honest, uh, we, we kind of just were going into this with just trying to see if we could figure out some way to close this fistula. So, um, so we ended up laser ablating the tract of this patient who had a gastrocutaneous fistula. We, we did a standard fistula gram uh, by putting a catheter into the origin of the, fistula, uh, the fistula, injecting some contrast, measured the size and diameter of it, and then put the uh, laser probe inside of the fistula and then ablated it for, I think, roughly like 40 seconds or so. We ablated the tract. Uh, and then we noticed after we did a contrast injection after that, that the tract was not filling anymore. So we thought that was that was actually satisfying. So we ended up sending the patient home, and um, her uh, leakage actually stopped and and, and tremendously uh, reduced, and essentially went to nothing. Um, she ended up ha- having a motor vehicle accident and ended up having to come back for one other additional repeat treatment with the laser. But uh, after that, it just completely healed, and uh, she didn't require any additional procedures. Uh, we did this a few other times on other patients who had these chronic uh, enterocutaneous fistulas. And the whole concept behind it is that our theory is at least that your goal is to try to de-epithelialize the tract. And, you know, the way way we traditionally do, done these procedures is we tried to kind of rough up the tract using either like a, um, a biliary biopsy brush or, or something to just get the tract a little bit rough. And then we would inject fibrin, fibrin uh, into the tract. Avacil is usually what we've been using or uh, glue. Uh, and so the concept is relatively similar, but the goal is to try to just de-epithelialize the tract and get rid of all that chronic mature tract to try to get the body itself to start healing it again. Because uh, once these tracts are mature, they're just going to be a continuous source of persistent, persistent drainage. So um, by doing this, it, it seemed to work really well in, in, the, in the patients that we did it on. And, uh, and they had, you know, tremendous results with, with significant uh, reduction. We published some of those patients in a, in a paper, in a brief report that we wrote for JVIR. Um, and um, all of those patients are still doing really well. Yeah. I mean, the, the patients that you publish, I mean, 10 out of 10 clinical success rate, that's, that's ludicrous. Well, so I think part of that is a little bit deceptive. I think so. Uh, I think initially our clinical success was about 80% on the first go around. Uh, as Robbie said, I mean, these are very difficult patients to treat uh, to begin with. Uh, you know, they often have uh, many, many, 
medical problems. They have multiple enterocutaneous fistulas, and it's hard to imagine uh, that it's going to resolve entirely uh, just with one treatment. So many of our patients did have to come back, uh, but uh, many of the fistulae did uh, resolve, the drainage from them resolved completely after the first treatment and uh, or after the second treatment. So it's certainly not an end-all, be-all but I think it's certainly a complementary approach to what we have. And I think it does work a little bit better than fibrin or NBCA or other types of glue we have. I mean, there's certainly, I think, some modifications that need to be uh, done determining the exact, uh, the best frequency, the best timing, and so forth. But it definitely does work. Yeah, and even the best type of laser. I mean, in that uh, series that was published on the Crohn's patients with anal fistulas, they use this laser called the Phylac laser, which is a 360-degree laser. Um, We've just been repurposing EVLT lasers, but, uh, you know, there might be a better laser out there that works even better that uh, would close these things uh, even faster. Well, I look forward to seeing where this goes. I mean, there are a lot of patients, like, in agony who could really benefit from this and, uh, you know, Hopefully, the two of you or your minions can continue this, uh, the research on this exciting topic. Um, yeah, well, I will say, like Robbie kind of uh, suggested, some of these patients that had gastrocutaneous fistula and were complaining for, you know, months, I mean, it's remarkable uh, when patients who've had a G-tube and have had chronic leakage, uh, you laser this thing and uh, it closes completely. It's like giving their life back. And uh, it's sort of interesting, I think, how it how it does actually work kind of the uh, where Ravi and I have these avenues of having interest in endoscopy for one of them. We actually uh, use the endoscope to actually visualize this process and you can see sort of uh, I don't know, scar tissue or collagen or something bands of tissue developing and actually closing these fistulas. So we have some sort of direct evidence that, we don't know exactly all the physiology behind it, but it does seem to work, and we have some uh, photographic evidence of it. Well, I, I think that probably covers everything that we've got today, and I just wanted to thank you guys again. Uh, we appreciate your support and everything you've contributed to our field. We're deeply thankful for your continued support of us at Backtable. This is kind of our one-year anniversary podcast, uh, and it's uh, contributors like you that are uh, keeping things exciting and, you know, we're excited for what's ahead for both of you. And we hope to have you both back as many times as we can, as you continue to show us what the future of our field looks like. Um, thanks again to our listeners as well. Uh, Jeff, Ravi, again, thank you. And we look forward to the next one. Thanks. And thanks for having us as always. Yep, thanks again.